Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Bromowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. When you think about the broader S&P, you know, from the peak to trough when this coronavirus really hit the markets, we had about a 34% decline in the S&P. The market's kind of carved back or clawed back about half that. And for a lot of investors, that seems a little bit unusual given or incongruous with the data we're seeing, the economic data, the jobless data, uh, and the data that uh, we're certain to see over the coming uh, days, weeks, and months. To get a sense of kind of how that's really playing out and what the relationship is there between the equity markets and the economic environment, we welcome Paul Krugman, Distinguished Professor of Economics at the City University of New York. He's also a New York Times columnist and Nobel laureate. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for joining Joining us again, a lot of our listeners, a lot of investors are not sure whether or how to square it with what's going on in the economy, the pain that they're seeing in the economy. Yet the stock market seems to be pretty solid. Yeah, well, the first thing to say is that stock market, you know, as, as I like to say, there are three rules about the stock market and the economy, which is that the stock market is not the economy, the stock market is not the economy, and the stock market is not right. the economy. Um, and actually, Beyond the fact that there's a whole lot of psychology in the market and uh, all kinds of things can move stocks, um, there's the simple fact that um, there are, there's another market that is much more closely linked to economic prospects, which is the bond market. The bond market has been telling us something very clear. They, if you look at, at long-term interest rates, you see you know, that, that uh, um, the 10-year is falling from uh, almost, uh, actually a little over 3% um, at, at the beginning of 2019 and uh, uh, well over uh, 2% at, at uh, you know, not, not very long ago to, uh, to, you know, a fraction of a percent now, 30-year rates down by half since, uh, since last fall. Um, so the bond market is, is signaling economic weakness. Um, that has a bearing on stocks because, you know, bonds are the alternative to stocks. Uh, a stock is a claim on future profits, not just profits in the next year, profits some ways into the future. And if you're going to discount those future profits at a much lower rate because interest rates are down, uh, that's a, an upward push for stocks. So once you take into account the fall in interest rates, it's not so peculiar that stocks have held up pretty well despite these calamitous economic numbers. Paul, is what I'm hearing from you support of the Fed bottle, the idea that the lower the interest rates, the more people will just be pushed into stocks because the relative earnings that you get uh, ultimately uh, pr- prove that they uh, become attractive regardless of what the economy seems to be showing? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's not, I mean, that's sort of obvious, right? If you think about there, there are stocks are competing with, with other assets uh, and for money. They, you can't tell what a stock is worth until you tell me what, what are the alternatives. Um, and the alternatives are, are actually looking pretty grim. The, uh, the market's just saying there's, there's just not much yield. Well, although you say it's kind of obvious, and yet we see that the earnings yield is falling dramatically on stocks as they cut their dividends and they cut their payouts uh, just in general and share buybacks because they are running out of money. So at what point is getting your money back a preferable outcome than risking it with a company that faces a very bleak outcome? Well, there's a, remember, the, the earnings yield on bonds is also very low now. 
again, it's uh, really long-term bonds. It's half what it was uh, before the coronavirus hit. And so um, you would ex- and remember also that uh, for the value of the stock depends a lot on expected future uh, uh, yields, not just this year, but, but three, four or five, maybe even 10 years out. So the, the, uh, it really is not that peculiar. Uh, what the, old, the question is, at what point do people say all of these yields are so low that I'm going to, I'm, I'm scared and I'm just going to uh, go into cash? Um, and that's, uh, that actually was happening for a couple of weeks in March. We had a, a point there where everything froze, where, where bond prices and stock prices both fell, uh, where, um, where corporate bonds were selling at you know, the, the yield on corporate bonds shot up because people were uh, afraid of default and the, and the and stocks cratered. Um, that came to a pretty abrupt end uh, in late March. And stocks rebounded, making up you know, something like half the losses that they'd experienced. But that's the story. The, as long as people are not afraid of a real financial crisis, and at the moment that, that fear has receded, um, then it makes sense for stocks to hold up pretty well despite a, a truly ghastly real economy. Talking about the, the real economy, Paul, we've seen, uh, obviously, the second quarter the expectations are for just crushing, crushing contraction uh, in GDP. But then I guess the, the real discussion becomes, to what extent and over what time period will the U.S. economy recover? We've had the Fed very aggressive. We've had fiscal stimulus uh, from Congress and more likely to come. How do you think the recovery plays out? I won't ask you to, to give me a letter, uh, a V or a W or an L or anything, but how do you think this is going to play out? Actually, I will give you. It's not a. It's not a letter. It's a swoosh. It's the okay. swoosh. It's a very steep, very steep decline, and then a climb. The only which is is clearly going to be much slower than the crash, um, and uh, it's the question of how fast that rise uh, is going to be is actually one of the hardest things. We we really don't have experience with this. Uh, the we. Uh, you can tell stories that, that go in all directions. I, I, I have no confidence at all in, in any prediction, including my own, on this. I, uh, you know, on the one hand, there could be pent-up demand, um, people raring to go. On the other hand, uh, there's probably a lot of financial damaging taking, you know, taking place now. Businesses, uh, business can't come back if the business has gone under. Uh, consumers may be wanting to rebuild their balance sheets after... Uh, after the, the beating they've taken and, and it, it, at the peak of the crisis. Um, and we also, the, the epidemiology is highly uncertain. You say, well, we're going to be ready to go back to business. Are we? I mean, it, uh, everything I see says that it, um, if you take out New York, which had a very steep peak in, in cases and is now falling, the rest of the country, things are still getting worse. And so your guess is a really as good as mine. uh, You certainly can't count on a rapid recovery. Flying blind is the way a lot of analysts have put it, and that's definitely how I feel right now. Paul Krugman, Distinguished Professor of Economics uh, at the City uh, University of New York, a New York Times columnist, Nobel laureate, and uh, really, uh, really helpful insights into this issue. Joining us on the phone from New Jersey, we are expecting a truly horrific jobs data figure on Friday when we get the April jobs numbers. We're expecting more than 20 million jobs to have been lost. And we saw numbers similar to that this morning from the ADP report. 
It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are joined today by Bloomberg Opinion columns Tara LaChapelle. She covers all things on the entertainment, telecommunications, and deals front for Bloomberg Opinion. So, Tara, thanks so much for joining us here. We had you know highly anticipated numbers out of Disney last night, and boy, it seems like their key businesses really bore the brunt of you know what's happening to the U.S. economy resulting from this pandemic. What kind of stood out for you as you looked at the results last night? Well, if you look at the park, the theme park division, their operating income in just that business was down 58%. And if you recall, that's for the quarter ended March 31st. So that was only the beginning of this crisis, which means this quarter is going to be a lot worse. Um, And that drove down Disney's overall net income by 91%. So it wasn't really surprising to see that, given that we know so much of Disney's different businesses have been affected and closed because of these lockdowns. But it was still really just momentous to look at those numbers and be like, wow, we haven't seen something like this from Disney for a really long time. Can you just talk a little bit about the breakdown in terms of where Disney gets revenues in terms of how much Disney Plus could actually pull with respect to revenues it brings in? So Disney Plus has been a bright spot, but when you look at the numbers, I mean, they're not that impressive yet because, you know, it's still losing money. It's it's nowhere near the level of these other businesses. Disney's still very dependent on their media network, the advertising money they get from that, their theme parks, of course their films that get released to movie theaters. So they're still very much tied to that. However, you can see that Bob Iger, as he was preparing for retirement, was trying to set up Disney for a future where streaming is going to play a much bigger role. And they had been hoping to get to 60 to 90 million subscribers globally for Disney Plus by the year 2024. They're already almost at 60 million now. So you can see that, you know, this is doing better than they expected. It can't carry the weight of Disney, but I think it definitely is a bright spot and something investors are at least like, well, they have this and it is the future. So maybe that's an opportunity there. Hey, Tara, did, was there any clarification on the call last night of what Bob Iger's role is? I mean, you know, it's been an on-again, off-again for years about whether he was, you know, when, when he was going to retire. He surprised everybody by retiring a couple of months ago, kind of right in front of this pandemic, which I think surprised a lot of people. And Bob uh, Chapek uh, was elevated to CEO role. And then there was some announcement that Bob was kind of coming back and taking a more hands-on role. So is there any clarification last night? They didn't address it head on, but I think there was kind of an unspoken message. When the earnings call began, Bob Iger kicked it off with some introductory remarks on just how he sees the business and how he's still really optimistic about the future and so on. But then from there, the new CEO, Bob Chapek, he handled all the questions along with their chief financial officer, and we didn't really hear from Iger the rest of the evening. So I think that was Disney's way of saying Chapek is the CEO. But I do think that Iger, as executive chairman, is perhaps being a little bit more hands-on than a chairman normally would. And I think maybe his focus, while Chapek is, you know, all his attention has to go to the theme parks right now and getting those back open, I think maybe Iger is focusing on the content side and making sure Disney Plus doesn't get thrown off course by all of this. One thing I was wondering about, Tara, the dividend, they said they were not going to pay it for the second half of the year. Do we have a sense of how long they will suspend the dividend as the uh, theme parks are struggling to reopen? It sounded like they were going to reassess it in about six months. 
So I think this was, it wasn't something they necessarily needed to do, but it just seemed like a smart move. They're trying to conserve their money right now. You know, they have lots of workers that are furloughed at the moment, but as, so their costs are, are lower than they would be. But as they get these parks back up and running, they're trying to figure out how many people they need to staff and what the effects of that are going to be relative to the lower volume of, of uh visitors that they're going to be allowing in. So I think they're just going to have to reassess that down the road. There's also a question of executive compensation. There's been some political ire over the fact that there still are packages, incentive packages uh, for some of the top executives, even though there is this absolute demolition of their balance sheet. Any word on that? You know, this has been an ongoing issue for Disney even before this crisis. Iger's pay has been increasingly controversial and you know now with them furloughing so many workers and I I think this could be you know something that makes its way back into the news again they really haven't talked much about it other than doing the same things that other companies are doing with cutting you know executive pay and things like that but you know as time wears on those employees that they had been paying even though they weren't working at the park that's going to you know they're going to stop doing that. And that's going to be something that becomes a little bit more controversial when these executives are obviously still making lots of money. Tara LaChapelle, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thank you so much for being with us. Definitely, Paul, that's been a political hot button issue, uh, especially as the the company cuts half of its employees tied to the theme parks. I'm just wondering, what, what did you make of the earnings? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it, kind of as expected, but just decimated. And they're going to be even worse this coming fiscal quarter because they're going to have a full quarter of the park shut down and no film and entertainment. And uh, so it's going to be tough. But I think the I think what most investors are saying is, you know, this is a world-class brand. And when we do get to the other side of this, uh, this is a brand that will once again start generating returns for shareholders. So I think that's kind of what we're seeing in the stock today. It's up about 3% today, but still down about 28% year to date. Yeah, there's also this idea that the entire environment is giving some wind to its Disney Plus offering and making it a real competitor for Netflix. So if they can hang on to those subscribers, that could be a potential boon to them on the other side of this. As we were just talking about with Tara LaChapelle, Disney Plus and Netflix have been some of the few bright spots in an otherwise bleak time for companies and employees alike. Meanwhile, theater companies like AMC are struggling to survive all this, leading to the question, how much will the media landscape change in the wake of this pandemic? Joining us now, someone with a front row seat to all of the changes over media, which is Terry Kawaja. He was former global head of media mergers and acquisitions at Citigroup and Credit Suisse First Boston, more than 20 years of experience, currently founder and chief executive officer of Luma Partners Investment Banking in New York. Terry, as you surveil the landscape right now that seems to be under a dramatic change, what will it look like on the other side? Good morning, Lisa. Great to be with you. You know, we have this, what's going on right now is this bizarre dichotomy between, we, we normally connect time spent in media with advertising opportunity. And we've got this decision that has taken place because here we are in COVID, in lockdown, and consumers across the board are consuming more media almost across every conceivable uh, category, more TV, more digital. Um, uh, and, and what's interesting is yet about at the same time, advertising is down. And, and when I say these changes are taking place, we're watching way more TV, way more digital. Uh, you know, spending more time on our phones, and yet advertising is down 30, 40 percent 
just in the course of the last two months. So this dichotomy between time spent and and uh, revenue from advertising is is pretty material. I think post COVID, we have to look to see what of these patterns uh, are are you know will stick are more permanent uh, than others because we should presume that when things get back to normal the sort of advertising opportunity should rematch with time spent so we should get rid of that chasm then the question is what will consumption look like and i think uh, in large part uh, you can assume that the impacts of covid have been not to necessarily change our uh patterns permanently, but rather accelerate the trends that we were previously seeing. So, for example, the shift from linear television to cutting the cord and and watching via streaming, that will likely accelerate post-COVID. The uh, enhanced uh, listening of of podcasts, the consumption of podcast media will likely uh, enhance uh, post-COVID. And then there's a few question marks uh, like around terrestrial radio, what you tell me, what the work from home patterns change post COVID, and I'll tell you uh, about the implications of drive time and therefore listening of terrestrial radio. So some of them we know for sure are accelerants of trends that were already happening pre COVID. Others are more jump ball. Terry, I know you're really on the front lines and dealing with a lot of the digital advertising ecosystem here, the buyers and sellers of digital advertising. Do you think one of the trends will be maybe an acceleration of advertising dollars from traditional media, whether it's broadcast and cable, television, print, and so on, to the digital, to the Facebooks, to the Googles of the world? Is that just going to be accelerated? Yeah, no, no, no question, right? If we, you know, at t- times of crisis... That tends to create inflection points, right, on existing trends. If we look back at the financial crisis 10 years ago, what happened was media spend in every single category went down except for one, search. Search ad spend went up during the last recession, which is and, and, and that is a function of the fact that advertisers retreat towards performance when, when times get tough, right? So uh, brand spend, spend on, you know, garnering impressions without necessarily it leading to the direct sale of a product tends to be thought of as more discretionary in nature. So when economic times turn down, you sort of uh, siphon off that some of that spend, whereas what you do keep spending on are the things that keep driving your business. So the tighter the connection between the spend on media in advertising Uh, and the results of driving actual new customers, those are the channels to which you will migrate to in downtimes. And those tend to be search, as I mentioned, uh, performance ads on Facebook and other uh, similar uh, channels. No question. Terry, there's also a question of who will remain after this crisis is over. We've seen from AMC theaters, for example, they're struggling uh, to stay afloat as no one can go to the movies and actually see them in a theater. There is also a question about mergers and acquisitions. Do you expect a rash of deals and consolidation in the near future? So I think what this crisis does, obviously, for growth companies, is it puts a cash constraint on. You've seen Almost most companies, you know, cut their guidance, uh, downsize their their workforce in preparation to withstand and weather uh, this storm because we just don't know the total uh, extent of the impact or how long it'll take. But absolutely, this will create 
sellers, right, companies that need to find a home. And again, this is the continuation or perhaps acceleration of a trend that we had witnessed and you, we all had talked about on, on, a, on a prior program uh, where it's inevitable that this will then cause some companies to want to sort of, you know, panic is probably too strong a word, but certainly, you know, seek, seek an exit. And then on the back end of this, when things come back, I think we will have been in whatever it is, three months, six months, nine months of a deal hiatus. And I actually do believe we'll see uh, a tremendous amount of strategic activity take place. So I'm actually uh, contemplating the end of this year and into 2021 as being a very active time for deals in media. So, Barry, we uh, Terry, we just had um, Disney report last night. And, the, you know, the silver lining, I guess, if there was one, was the Disney Plus and all their streaming businesses uh, doing pretty well. You know, People, I guess, are sampling a lot now. We're all quarantined. We're sampling all the streaming products out there. How many streaming services do you think will ultimately uh, shake out in this market? Yeah, it's a good question, Paul. I think uh, if you look at the survey data, you know, people suggest that you know, it sort of irons itself out in and around the three to five, you know, subscription services. And, of course, it's a function of, you know, what, what the, the nature of those services and how comprehensive I think of it more in terms of the total economic bundle. So the ARPU, the average revenue per user, what, what the average American pays for their cable bundle is approximately $100 a month. Uh, that translated into a streaming world is about half of that, about $50 a month. So if you think of, you know, Netflix plus maybe, you know, an HBO Max subscription, maybe you've got, you know, Sling as some, one of these comprehensive VMVPDs to give you a, a, a bundle of channels, it'll right. all add up to in that sort of $45, $50 range. So it's, it's materially less. Hey, Terry, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts and your perspective. You're right on the front lines here of the media space, the digital media space, a transformation of uh, linear media to digital media. Terry Kawaja, founder and CEO of Luma Partners uh, Investment Banking. They, uh, they target that whole digital media space. And, and Lisa, we've seen just transformational shift of ad dollars from traditional media uh, to digital and, and, and Terry and his firm are right there dealing with all those companies on the front line. So we appreciate that. This is Bloomberg. A story, Paul, that really, uh, really cried out to me this morning, yep. written by Sean Donnan and Joe Doe, talking about the layoffs that we're seeing in unprecedented numbers across America. There is a question, are we moving from a temporary wave of layoffs to something much more permanent and, uh, and, and nefarious when it comes to a longer-term recovery. Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg, joining us now. Sean, how much have you seen by way of evidence that a lot of the layoffs that we're seeing right now are going to be permanent? Yeah, well, I mean, the story of the jobs market in the U.S. right now is, is a story of, a lot, in a lot of cases, of the data that we don't have, right? I mean, it, it's we know that these jobs numbers we're going to get on Friday are going to show us that there were huge layoffs in, in, in April, but they're not going to really answer one of the key questions, which is what we set out to answer here or address here, and that is how many of these layoffs are temporary? and how many are permanent and what we're seeing in the notices that companies are filing with state authorities around the country you can dig into these what are called warn notices in places like ohio wisconsin washington state california all over the place and you read those letters and more and more companies are starting to use the word at least uh... Um, at least indefinite 
and often permanent. And that is uh, scary for anyone who's hoping for a V-shaped recovery in the U.S. economy. So, Sean, I think I'm guessing, you know, in your reporting, a lot of what you found is that the companies really just don't know, you know, how this virus is going to play out. Is there going to be a second wave? I mean, are most companies that you looked at, were they – are they still clinging to the hope that there, this will be a relatively, uh, you know, yes, it will be a brutal contraction in GDP in the second quarter, but that, in fact, will be relatively brief? Look, I, I think everyone's clinging to that hope. Uh, and we've seen Kevin Hassett uh, go out there this morning and the president uh, do this a number of times, uh, talking about the possibility of a real rebound in the third quarter of this year. But what you're starting to see in these layoff notices is companies saying, I can hope but I'm looking at my order book. I'm looking at demand and what I'm expecting ahead, and that looks like a much slower recovery than what I'm hoping for, and therefore I'm going to start cutting costs and I'm going to start laying off people. And one of the companies we mention in here is, is you know, these are, these are not short-term decisions. These are, these are, in some cases, companies that have long histories. One of the companies we look at in this story is the Michigan Maple Block Company, which goes back to 1881 in the Michigan town of Petoskey, uh, four hours north of Detroit. And it is laying off uh, and shutting down, and that means 56 workers are are done and will be done by 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 the end of uh, by the early July, uh, and that is you know the beginning of the third quarter that that we're talking about that we're hoping for that recovery. So you see those layoffs, and again those and those layoffs in the case of Michigan Maple aren't showing up yet in the in the broader economic data because they haven't happened yet. Uh, but that company is shutting down, and it's just saying it can't do anymore. You look at the auto supply chain company I talked to, Alludyne, which makes lightweight aluminum. Uh, chassis components. They sell to all the major car makers. And they're looking at forecasts for the auto market right now. Going into this crisis, we were expecting the U.S. to sell some 16 million cars this year. Now people are talking about more like 11 or 12 million. That's just a huge drop in demand uh, through the rest of the year for this company's products. And what are they doing? They're responding by laying off 250 people in Michigan and in Georgia, the foundry that they have there, and yeah. that those are permanent layoffs. Those people Sean, aren't coming back to work. I'm struck by the regions and the industries that you keep mentioning. Michigan, the Rust Belt in general, and these are industrial companies, and I'm wondering how much this is accelerating a trend that we had seen for years, frankly, which is a shift away from industrials that maybe will be solidified with a much smaller industrial footprint in the United States going forward. Yeah, look, I, I, it's hard to tell where we're going to come out of this, right? I mean, with, this is a, a, a once in a, in not just a once in a generation, it's once in a century event in, in many ways economically. Uh, some companies will be able to come through this and, and be more robust and maybe even gain market share. But you look at the steel industry, you look at uh, aluminum, Alcoa shutting down a big uh, smelter out in, uh, in Washington State, laying off 700 people. You look at the auto industry. Uh, and what's going to happen there. You look at coal miners. Uh, one of the companies that we talk about in, in this is uh, runs a coal mine in Billsville, Ohio. 110 people are going to be laid off uh, there. It's hard to... to you know, we think oftentimes about the impact on, on travel or hotels and restaurants and, and so on of this crisis and the things that we're not going to do anymore. But this is really hitting industrial America, and it's a major crisis for industrial America. 
Sean Donna, thanks so much for joining us. Really a compelling story you and Joe Doe put out, just a really interesting story about the real impact uh, that we're seeing in terms of behind the employment numbers that we talk about every week. Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg and Lisa. Sean's story just kind of brings back the, you know, to the fore once again, if we ever do forget about it, that uh, when we talk about these uh, employment uh, figures, the jobless claims uh, every week, that there are, you know, real companies, real yeah. people, real communities, you know, really being impacted by what's happening as a result of this coronavirus in terms of the yeah. economic activity. Yeah, I would say that the political implications, too, are vast, considering that these are uh, some of the swing states and some of the ones uh, that were hardest hit after the last crisis and look like they're at the epicenter of this one once again. Yeah, exactly right. As we come up to a presidential election period, uh, certainly some issues for uh, the candidates to think about is that this will be front and center, obviously, for this upcoming election, the pandemic and how elected officials have reacted. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.